0: Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, not in person, but remotely, is my friend and colleague, Mick Mickey, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well. Um, It's hilarious that right before we started recording, you asked me how my day was going, and I really cannot recall anything I've been doing uh, up until now. So essentially, I I guess what I'm trying to say is I've been looking forward
0: to this moment all day, and nothing uh, compares to this. Nothing else registers. Um, well, I'm, I'm glad you think so. I'm, I'm excited about today because we have a special guest joining us. Our guest is a longtime friend and collaborator of mine who we've been meaning to have on for a while. Um, and as we'll see, this is like, I think, uh, really the ideal time to, to have him on to talk about his research. Uh, so our guest today is Josh Tiber. He's an associate professor in the Department of Experimental and Applied Psychology at the Free University of Amsterdam. That's the VU, V-U. Um, his work uh, is dedicated dedicated to better understanding how people solve some of the fundamental problems of life, including avoiding infectious diseases, obtaining or attaining a mate, and navigating the threats and affordances of interdependence. And one really cool thing about Josh's work, I think, is that he combines uh, techniques, approaches, um, theory from lots of different disciplines, including social and personality, psychology, but then also evolutionary biology. So, Josh, thanks so much for joining us and welcome to the show.
2: Thanks a lot, guys. Great to be here.
0: So what we'd like to do before we start talking about the actual content is talk about what we're drinking. Um, And Mickey, I believe committed to day drinking for this episode. Are you actually following through on that commitment or no?
1: I am following through. And uh, I went shopping, uh, you know, my my one trip to the grocery store a week that I allow myself to go. And thankfully now in Ontario, you can buy beer and wine in select grocery stores. So the one the grocery store I happen to go to uh, offers beer and wine. And I knew it was going to be a daytime thing. And, you know, that hasn't prevented me in the past. I mean, last year I was drinking at 9 a.m., uh, Bali time, but, uh, that was more of a holiday vibe, uh, than uh, the current pandemic allows me to feel. So I decided, uh, I needed something a bit mellower and I've decided to go with a Radler. So a Radler is, um, typically a fruit juice typically i think grapefruit juice and in fact the one i have is a grapefruit juice it's i think half grapefruit half beer uh, and this is uh from moosehead uh brewing which is uh not a huge brewer in canada but uh well known uh, from the east coast i believe from nova scotia and i just love the name moosehead and uh, i'm looking forward to uh you know a refreshing
0: beverage uh to start my afternoon off nice That sounds very afternoon appropriate. And Josh, it's actually evening your time because you're in the Netherlands, so you actually can
2: be drinking guilt-free. So what have you got there? Well, tonight I've got a Two Chefs Brewing Green Bullet IPA. So this is a uh, craft brewery in Amsterdam. When I moved to Amsterdam in 2011, you pretty much couldn't find an IPA in the country, but now they're just popping up everywhere. And this is one of my favorite local ones.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I remember living there, so I was there... um, 2010 to 2014 and the two things i really missed were ipas and bourbon so at least the the ipas have really come along the bourbon i imagine is still a little tough to find right so you before we uh you know uh we let you off the hook. What What are you drinking today? Oh, I'm having tea. I don't have the balls to day drink. And honestly, like we were, we recorded another episode last night. I was drinking wine. I woke up feeling like not exactly hungover, but but not awesome. And drinking doesn't seem appealing to me. You
1: know what? I too. I only had two like sm- smallish for us beers, and I too woke up with a bit of a hangover. This is what happens, I guess, when you're 47. Uh, It's my excuse, at least, you
0: will. Um, Yeah, no, I I don't know what my excuse is because I'm five years behind you, but I'm justifying this as like, I got to keep the immune system at a state of like full readiness, right? Like I can't afford to be abusing my body right now. So I'm making the healthy choice and drinking some nice tea. Excellent. Uh, So I'm going to open this up and and I'm saving this up because I love the sound of this.
1: And uh, refreshing. It's like, um,
0: tastes like the afternoon. Delightful. So- um one thing we're curious about uh before we get to the actual scientific content, Josh, is so we're recording this now um on March twenty fifth. How are things looking over there? Um what's going on in the Netherlands?
2: Well, um I personally have a little bit of a at a little bit of a foreshadowing that this was going to be at this level because my fiance is from Italy and she was visiting her family in Milan when I was at SPSP in New Orleans third week of February. So, um, her parents have actually been locked down for about four weeks. We were about two weeks behind that, and it really happened suddenly for us, probably like it did for you as well. Um, At first, we just had an announcement that the uh, university would be closed for a little bit. Then shortly thereafter, the bars and cafes and uh, restaurants would be closed until April 6th. And it seems like every week there's another kind of increase in the social distancing measures Um, right now all gatherings of 100 people are banned through june 1st Uh, you're requested to stay at home but you're not banned from going outside Um, you are asked to not go outside in any groups of people larger than three Um, i've been out running every couple days with a colleague of mine there are some people outside but not that many uh, my partner and I went for a walk around Amsterdam last week, around 8 p.m., and it really felt like London in 28 days later. Uh, I was ready for, you know, a stray zombie to start running out of the side of an alley. Um, it's uh, it's a little eerie and, uh, yeah, not something that you ever expected to see. So
1: that sounds, uh, I would say, quite a bit more um, affected than at least what I'm seeing on the streets of Toronto Um so I think officially, as of, I believe, last night, everything that is not deemed an essential service has been locked down. So anything, you know, essentially restaurants, some restaurants have to do takeout, some grocery stores, medical services are the only things left open. I Actually, apparently a bike mechanics are also exempt. But the streets are certainly emptier, err. But I certainly wouldn't say they're empty. Uh there's still people about. Uh I try to go for a walk every every day with my children and I and the parks are actually again, not full, uh not nearly as busy as typical. Um but there's still people about. Um so it sounds like you guys are um way ahead of us in terms
0: of uh implementing social distancing. So you know, as I was reading about the social distancing uh, measures that countries are implementing, and in many cases, the, uh, the trouble that they're having to get people to comply with these requests, or I guess now more than requests, uh, requirements, um, it made me think of research on what's called the behavioral immune system, um, something that uh, Josh and I have both studied that I would say Josh is probably more of an expert on it than I am, where the idea is we have this uh, set of adaptations, behaviors that help us avoid um, pathogens, that help us avoid in in part uh, infectious diseases. And the idea is that these adaptations evolved um, because those of our ancestors who are better at avoiding pathogens were more likely to survive to leave offspring. And therefore, we have these kind of um, built in or or prepared uh, mechanisms that help us do this. And yet, When it comes to something like COVID, uh, you really don't see people taking the behavioral measures that they should, at at least not all of them. So I uh, mentioned this to Josh as we were emailing, setting up this episode, and he said, oh, I've actually uh, written something kind of recently about that. So I wonder um, if you might walk us through that piece. And we'll, of course, also post a link in the show notes for our readers who want to check that out
2: yeah absolutely so one interesting thing to think about in terms of COVID 19 is that right now we're all aware that it's called by a virus the somewhat awkwardly named sars cov2 virus Um, but humans have only been aware that viruses and bacteria exist for about 150 years and we're only now able to understand that this disease going around is caused by a virus based on advances in the germ theory of disease and some heroic efforts by microbiologists. Um, but humans have been around for about 200,000 years and our hominid ancestors for several million more. And that raises the question, um, were we blind to avoid pathogens for the 99.5 or nine or whatever percent of our history that no human on earth even had seen a bacterial cell? And, um, you know, this, this problem is exacerbated by the fact that these things are really small. They're almost invisible. We can't see them in the naked eye. Yet, they, um, you find them in the types of environments that we, we inhabit in some substances more than other substances. So they're more likely to be in bodily wastes than they are in human hair. They're more likely to be on rotting meat than they are on a tree. Um, they're more likely to be on someone uh, with lesions or rashes on their skin than someone with clear skin. And basically, if we had some recurrent kind of uh, correlations between certain features of the environment and pathogens, our sensory systems could evolve to treat those types of features as information regarding infectious microbes. Now, of course, um, just having the ability to detect these things via olfaction, so uh, this, the odors that correspond with rotting meat or bodily wastes or uh, vision, like the color and viscosity of you know infected wounds, um, etc, that's not really going to be enough to actually inhibit our contact with pathogens. We also need motivational mechanisms to make us avoid them in the first place. And so that's where um, this type of thinking kind of dovetails with research on disgust. Disgust is kind of this felt motivation for avoiding these types of cues when they're detected. Um, But just to throw in another wrinkle, we're not going to have just any kind of avoidance response. So we can think of avoiding larger kind of threats like uh, tigers or crocodiles or snakes that can move really fast. And so we want avoidance mechanisms that when we detect those things, we move really fast. Also, the thing with pathogens is they don't have muscles, so they can't actually pursue us. The way that we neutralize them is typically through uh, avoiding contact with something or just kind of physical proximity, a couple meters distance from uh, the types of cues that we would recognize. So research over the past 15 years or so in social psychology with evolutionary perspectives um, initially spearheaded by Mark Schaller, a social psychologist at the University of British Columbia, has tried to understand a lot of the social psychological consequences of these antipathogen adaptations, what we could call a behavioral immune system.
0: So I guess it raises the question of, are there a visual or auditory or olfactory cues that go along with somebody who has a respiratory infection that we would find disgusting, that would that would lead to these distancing motivations.
2: Yeah. So this is one of the tricky things about respiratory infections. Um, they're uh, they're often spread f- uh, through acts that are not necessarily diagnostic of infectious disease. So coughs and sneeze happens for a lot of different reasons, and most of the time it's not because someone has COVID nineteen. And further, you know, as you've probably read in the news. COVID-19 is often spread uh, via people who are asymptomatic, who don't have any symptoms of illness. And a really cool thing, if you look at the, they call them volunteer challenge studies. Um, It's basically when people sign up to go to a hospital and they're infected by a pathogen so they can be monitored and researchers can see what the infection course is. Um... Meta-analyses of volunteer challenge studies with influenza show that about 90% of the people who are administered influenza begin viral shedding eventually. That is, they become infectious. But only 70% of them actually develop illness symptoms. So there's you know, a sizable minority who, even when you're administered influenza, you're, you can infect people even if you never feel sick yourself. And also, Um, the viral shedding occurs before the illness is actually experienced, and you're shedding the most viral particles before you're the sickest. So we also see this in terms of um, uh, sexually transmitted diseases. They're often uh, contagious without a person knowing that they're infected or showing symptoms of illness. There is a famous example of this with typhoid Mary. So Typhoid Mary was an Irish cook who kind of jumped from job to job in New York in the early 20th century. And she was an asymptomatic carrier of the bacteria that causes typhus, uh, I'm sorry, typhoid fever. And um, basically no one could be the wiser of her being an infection threat. And again, this is where we really have problems when pathogens are bypassing this behavioral immune system because they're not producing the types of cues that we would intuitively respond to.
0: Right. You know, it's interesting. You could think of this almost as a, arms race between people and pathogens, right? So if a pathogen evolves such that the host is highly contagious before the host shows any symptoms, then you kind of, by definition, can't evolve a behavioral adaptation to to avoid contagious individuals, right? So the pathogens that manage to figure that out are the ones that are going to be more successful, all else equal.
2: Yeah, that's right. And another interesting thing that, uh, you know, virologists have noticed is that the types of pathogens that are transmitted by um, arthropods, so things that are transmitted by mosquitoes and uh, tsetse flies um, and ticks, those tend to be a lot more um, virulent, a lot more damaging than ones that aren't. And the reason is that um, when the pathogen basically incapacitate someone, lays them out on their back. That's going to inhibit the degree to which it can be spread to other individuals. And um, mosquitoes, basically, it can actually be pretty good for the pathogen if it makes the person so sick that they can't even swat the mosquitoes away. So like if you have dengue fever and you're just there laid out stiff as a board, um, that's pretty good for the pathogens. And we also, you know, despite having these behavioral immune mechanisms we're not necessarily disgusted by, or that effective at um, neutralizing those types of pathogens that we can't avoid.
1: I wonder, uh, Josh, if you could talk a little bit um, beyond disgust, because you, you mentioned you started off talking about, um, I guess, one defense mechanism at our disposal, which would be fear, right? The, the, you know, fear is what leads us to run away from 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 the tiger. Um, but it seems like fear would be really useful. Uh, you know, a useful defense against pathogens as well. Um, so I'm not necessarily disgusted by asymptomatic individuals, but because I've got knowledge that they might be infectious, I'm fearful of them. And, and actually, I would say I, and I suspect many of us, generalize this fear. We're fearful of 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 thing a lot of all social contact now. We're worried. I mean, um. I'm happy to not have Yoel in the room with me right now, even though I love Yoel, right? Because I worry that, you know, he visited the US recently, a, a, a hotspot of, 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 of COVID-19. And, um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just afraid of him. Uh, so is this also part of the behavioral immune system? Uh, how does it work in conjunction with disgust?
2: Yeah. Um, so I totally agree with the observation. Uh, one thing with disgust and the other, uh, kind of, you know observations that we've discussed up to this point is we can say that they're specialized for pathogen threats the type of fear or anxiety that we're feeling right now i think would be akin to you know we know that there are some suicidal terrorists around but we don't know who is one of them basically we're hypervigilant um and we're we're trying to suss out information when very little information is available and um you know, with, with infectious disease, this is even a bigger issue because people with infectious disease are typically not acting upon their own goals. They don't have intentions that you can monitor to try to predict their behavior or to try to adjust your behavior accordingly. And, um, you know, that this type of dynamic might create a real type of fear or anxiety that we could see similar to a natural disaster like nuclear fallout or something. So again, just to briefly summarize, um, I wouldn't say that it's specialized for the behavioral immune system, but I think that these types of responses are also uh, going to try to navigate threats more generally. So, no one has actually tried to incorporate other other basic
1: emotions in 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 like in, in theorizing about the behavioral immune system. Is it strictly a disgust based uh, motivational system? It can't, you know, accommodate other these other emotions.
2: Yeah. So. Um, there are other perspectives, well, not other perspectives, but there are perspectives that suggest that a lot of the behavioral immune system isn't necessarily using the emotion discussed at all. So... um You know, some kinds of uh, prejudices like outgroup general negativity could be an aspect of the behavioral immune system to inhibit contact, to inhibit immigrants from coming into your community. And that could be manifest in emotions that are more similar to anger or fear, for example. Um, If someone was running at you with, you know, like a zombie, like an Ebola zombie with blood oozing from their nose, even though Ebola patients are typically on their back, I would guess that people would probably feel a strong fear response there simply because um the vector is moving so fast unlike, you know, a typical pathogen.
0: You know, um I really relate to to this uh the way that Mickey put this where if you're out on the street and you you see somebody who seems like they're going to come a little uncomfortably close to you. I mean, now you you feel Frightened, Right. Or a little anxious, at least. There are some behaviors that I've noticed myself now having a disgust response to. And I think this is interesting because it sort of illustrates how flexible the disgust response can be. So I think a lot of people have had this experience of watching like a TV show or a movie and seeing strangers touching each other, shaking hands and being like, whoa, that already seems crazy. And I feel now a little grossed out <laughs> when I see You know, when I see strangers touch each other, I'm like, oh, no, don't do that. Right. And so I, I wonder what's going on there. Is it like, what is disgust latching onto in that particular case? Is it the kind of like bodily contact? Is it some idea of like a norm violation? We now have this new norm of staying distant from people that you don't know. Do what do you think?
2: Oh, I would guess that both of those are applying. So this is definitely a situation where I've seen a lot of social condemnation from people on the streets or in discussions with people of, oh, I can't believe that this person is not recognizing this advice from the public health sector. And um, here, uh, people are really treating those individuals like defectors in some kind of a, a public goods game or a resource dilemma. Um, and I also, yeah, I also think that the uh, conception that physical contact is such a greater contamination threat right now, that there can be a kind of uh, empathic disgust response when you see physical contact between people, just as there might be if you, you know, see someone on fear factor eating, you know, horse intestine or something like that.
0: Right. Right, Mickey. You look like you want to jump in here. Well, I
1: had a. Um, I'm not sure. I'm trying to trying to uh, like conceptualize my own uh, emotional response that I had to something happen happened earlier this week. Um, as I'm sure all of us here are, are worried about uh, family members, um, especially perhaps our parents if they're still alive. Um, so I've got parents. My parents are both alive. My uh, my mother is 75. My 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 dad around the same age, and. Um, uh you know my mom is actually i would say immunocompromised she's had some some issues uh with her lungs she's had a history of pneumonia and uh, my dad uh, not so much so but uh he's still uh working and um when we were trying to implore on him, you know listen please don't go to work like you know you you could can, you can bring you can spread the disease to mom and and she's really uh uh susceptible here my dad's first response was um literally in capitals fake news like he was he was minimizing the threat of covid nineteen and clearly this is almost like a a, a a a reflexive uh partisan response on his part maybe he's watching too much fox news uh too much right wing media i'm not exactly sure, but at that moment i I was disgusted by that response. I was like it was morally disgusted. I wasn't you know physically disgusted. But it was it was it was abhorrent to me um, but again, that seems again, maybe speaking to what you all just mentioned, a, a kind of flexible way in which uh, this emotion can operate. Um, I'm not physically disgusted at all, but it, it was so repugnant what he said, so counter to um the way I think we should be acting. so yeah am I feeling disgust there? what what am I actually feeling in the, in, in you know in that moment?
2: So um, disgust is, uh, yeah, a really complex and confusing emotion. And in fact, um, if you look at the definitions that people have given to disgust, they're oftentimes reflecting um, how confounding it can be. So Darwin defined disgust as responses to things that are revolting. So basically, disgust is response to disgusting things, and um, you know I could pull out another half dozen definitions from social psychologists in the past 20 years that basically say that moral disgust is response to sleazy things, and uh, disgust is response to impurities that threaten purity, et cetera, and One of the reasons why it's so confusing, I think, is because it seems like it's elicited by so many different things that would seem to be posing so many different threats that we're almost a little dumbfounded to say uh, what its function is or even to give it a definition other than disgust is disgust. Now, um, different research programs have, you know, tried to deconstruct disgust to try to put it in more manageable components. And better understand those components individually rather than rely on, um, you know, disgust just generally protects the self. Um, one approach to doing that, which has been very influential, was pioneered by Paul Rosin and John Haidt. And uh, they have, you know, foundational work on disgust that proposes uh, disgust functions in kind of a, a core domain that's about pathogens, Um a uh an animal reminder domain which borrows from tenor management theory and it basically suggests that we feel disgusted because if we're reminded of our own mortality that will create some kind of crippling anxiety and feeling disgusted uh removes us from those reminders of our animal nature uh interpersonal disgust which uh, is about both pathogens and kind of social and symbolic distance and moral disgust um, My colleagues and I have uh, a a different take on this issue, and we've developed a model that suggests that we can uh, prooffully think about disgust in terms of pathogen disgust, which is what we've been talking about so far. Um, Sexual disgust, which has a different kind of function and navigates different types of problems and should have different kinds of behavioral manifestations, And um, moral disgust, which actually we've proposed, there's two kind of facets of this. One is the fact that we often moralize behaviors that are otherwise disgusting for sexual or pathogenic reasons. And the other, Mickey, is pretty similar to your observation, and that people seem to communicate moral condemnation with a language of disgust. And that uh, these two kind of moral phenomena are probably distinct as well. So there's been... um a ton of work
0: done on the the underpinnings of moral judgment, whether part of what makes us condemn immoral behavior is this visceral feeling of being disgusted. And so when you talk about moral disgust, that makes it sound like absolutely yes. Um, is that what you, what you think, that we are actually physically disgusted when we're thinking about, I don't know, somebody committing tax fraud, for example, or Mickey's example of his dad acting irresponsibly?
2: Um, I'm a little bit agnostic on that claim. And that claim has produced a lot of uh, energetic disagreement in the literature. And I don't know if the answer to that question is all that important for understanding you know, what are the behavioral consequences of moral disgust. Um, regardless of whether, you know, it's the same exact qualia as the experience of pathogen disgust. Um, Now, when I can describe situations where I felt morally disgusted, just like Mickey just did, I certainly can remember feeling a a sensation similar to that when I see mold on food. Um, So it doesn't strike me as, uh, you know, implausible, at least from my own personal experience, But again, um, my interest in the topic is more, you know, what does it do to other people in the social environment when you express disgust rather than express anger? What types of behaviors are people engaging in when they're saying they're morally disgusted by something versus when they're saying that they're angry by something?
0: So you've you've also done individual differences work, right, where you developed a scale to measure individual differences in people's um, sensitivity to these different kinds of disgust, right? And in terms of the behavioral immune system uh, framework, uh, differences in sensitivity to pathogen disgust make a ton of sense, right? Some of us are going to be more sensitive to pathogen cues in the environment than than others of us. There's costs and benefits, trade-offs there. You know, you explore less. Uh, you may... Not gain some valuable resource, but you also protect yourself um against threats it's a little less clear to me what individual differences in moral disgust sensitivity map onto like what 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 is that like what is that construct
2: uh, it's a great question so i I can answer it in two separate ways. One concerns the instrument that we've developed, and um <clears throat> the other concerns uh you know instances of moral disgust outside the instrument so yeah
0: let's let's do both because i do want to talk about the measures and this is going to be a little bit of a like nerdy measurement detour (laughs) but but uh I, i think it's worth doing so um yeah so why don't you do both and then we'll come back to because i know that you have disagreements with one of the most widely used scales to measure disgust sensitivity and i definitely want to hear more about that
1: we are a nerd part podcast here, Yoel, so I think we're allowed <laughs> That's to true.
2: nerd out. We we're leaning into it right now. You, you have an audience of nerds, so this will hopefully be great for some of them. Um, so, uh, you know, I'll actually kind of foreshadow, Yoel, the conversation that you just said that you want to have in a little bit. <clears throat> in uh, in a 1994 paper, John Haidt and colleagues, including Paul Rosin, developed the first uh, discussed sensitivity instrument. And- In doing so, they aimed to measure moral disgust because when they were, you know, developing the items, a lot of people were nominating moral events um, as things that disgusted them. They found that responses to those items didn't co-vary with responses to the other items, so they left it off the scale. Um, In a 2009 paper, we decided to incorporate those types of responses because people also nominated moral uh, violations uh, when we had a similar item nomination process. And um, through, you know, subsequent studies using uh, factor analysis, we uh, we parsed down seven items that were um, loading on the same factor and uh, co-varying sufficiently, and we call that a moral disgust uh, subscale. And basically, this scale involved things that are uh, related to lying, cheating, and stealing, you know, signature foraging, cutting in line, uh, betraying people, etc. Um, now this instrument, we've also seen how it correlates with, uh, both big five personality and hexaco personality. We've looked at sex differences. We've seen how it relates to political ideology, et cetera. And, um, the strongest correlations that I've seen with the scale of so people saying, uh, responding more strongly with, yes, I'm, I'm disgusted by lying, cheating and stealing is the honesty, humility factor of the hexaco personality inventory and conscientiousness. So basically, it's the people who are honest, hardworking people who score higher on the moral domain of the scale, meaning that they find lying and cheating and stealing more objectionable. And, you know, one interpretation of that is that they're disadvantaged by other people breaking rules that they're following. And therefore, they're going to be more motivated to have uh, these punishment-oriented, other condemning emotions.
1: I I wonder, Josh, um, if you could talk a little bit About uh, the relationship between disgust, be it you know psychometrically or more theoretically, Uh, so again the relationship between disgust and and political orientation, because that was one of my first introductions to um, the topic of disgust was this uh, this apparent association between uh, ideology and disgust, but I know that's. Controversial now, and uh, I wonder what uh, if you can kind of give us a uh, give us a summary of the the lay of the land as it currently stands. Uh,
2: Yeah, sure. So I I can briefly summarize the research on the topic, and uh, you know I'm kind of jumping into Yoel's domain because uh, this research program kind of started with a 2009 paper that Yoel published, which was titled "Conservatives are more easily disgusted than liberals," something along those lines. And basically, uh, just using single items of how liberal versus conservative you are, or maybe breaking those up into economic and social conservatism, um, and using the Height and Colleagues Discuss Scale, Yoel and colleagues reported a correlation around maybe 0.2, 0.25, Yoel? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, something in that range. And um, I actually contributed to this debate in uh, 2010 um, in a paper, some colleagues and I, conducted three studies at the University of New Mexico and Michigan State University, and we didn't find that relationship at all in our three-domain discussed scale. And, um, you I, I hope you're not outing, I hope I'm not outing you here, but you always uh, a reviewer on the this study, this, this failure to replicate before failure to replicate was cool. And to his credit, I never met him before, but he was just one of the classiest and most constructive reviewers uh, I could have asked for. And gave really nice feedback. Um, Yoel later published a paper with John Height and others that used the yourmorals.org uh, website data, and found with you know five thousand, ten thousand something participants, a correlation of about the same magnitude as what uh, he had found originally with the uh, with the Height disgust scale. Now, they did notice in that paper uh, that there was one item from that scale. That was correlating stronger than all the others it was an item that was uh, basically answering how disgusted you would be by being in a sex education class and inflating an unlubricated condom with your mouth and there the correlation was about 0.3 most of the other items the correlation was under 0.06 and so um, this gave uh this gave yoel and i the idea that maybe there's really something about this sexual stuff that's underlying this relationship. And it's not so much the pathogen stuff. Um, so Yoel and I published a paper in 2015 where we, uh, we again, conducted three studies. And we looked at uh, both sociosexuality, which is uh, basically how open you are to non-monogamous sex, um, and sexual disgust. And we also looked at uh, pathogen disgust. And we found in all three studies that Yes, there was this bivariate relationship between pathogen disgust and uh, a simple measure of conservatism. How liberal versus conservative are you on social issues? Um, the relationship with the sexual variables was always stronger. And once we control for those sexual variables, there was no relationship between the pathogen disgust and the conservatism. So basically what we argued is that, and this is, you know, this is not the final chapter in the story by any means, but we suggested that more pathogen avoidant individuals might develop sexual strategies that are more conservative, so less kind of uh, non-monogamous, less kind of permissive strategies, since that's a really big um, factor in acquiring infectious disease, and that people who follow these more monogamous, more restricted sexual strategies happen to support conservative political Policies for reasons apart from pathogen avoidance, and that we might be seeing this relationship between pathogen avoidance and conservatism as a byproduct of that. Um, And then there was one other paper that I'll just briefly mention that we've conducted. Uh, We collected data in 30 countries um, and we administered both uh, a traditionalism measure, so one facet of right wing authoritarianism, and we administered a social dominance orientation measure. And we found across these 30 countries, that there's uh, there's a, a weak I, I believe, that the correlation was about R is equal to 0.18 when disattenuated for unreliability. Correlation across all of these countries in the relationship between pathogen disgust sensitivity and traditionalism, but the correlation with social dominance orientation is like R is equal to 0.06, which is non-zero with 11,000 participants, but very low. And so what these findings can help us do is uh, not just answer the question, well, is there a relationship between disgust and uh, politics? But what dimension of political ideology is there a relationship there for? And what type of disgust are we talking about?
0: Right. So when you say byproduct, I guess I wouldn't put it exactly that way, right? It's a a component of conservative ideology is the social conservatism and specifically sexual conservatism, right?
2: Yeah, I think that's a great clarification. Yes. Cool. Yeah. So part of
0: your critique, I think, of of a lot of this work has been that the height scale, um, to be blunt, is just kind of bad um, and that people should be using other scales Of course, you happen to have one Um, that's, uh, you know, neither here nor there. Um, But I wonder, you know, um, what uh, whether you could expand on that a little bit, because it's definitely possible. We've been talking on the show about these, you know, issues around uh, replicability, um, but but then also measurement. Right. So like it's possible to have like a statistically robust relationship that actually doesn't mean what you think it means, right? So if your measure is bad, uh, the robust relationship that you see with that measure may be misleading because it's measuring something other than what you think it is. And y- you've argued that um, the height measure is is bad in in maybe this way, and that it misleads you in in terms of what you're actually, wh- what those scores actually mean.
2: Uh, yeah, so uh, I'd like to disclose that I'm not a uh, disinterested party, as <laughs> you noted out. I have, a, I have a measure that... Uh, of course, I developed thinking that it's a good alternative, and um, I, I still think that. But, uh, of course, my uh, my perspective on that might be colored by incentives a little bit. And, um, you know, I, I, I hesitate to describe measures as good measures or bad measures or uh, same as uh, research as good research or bad research necessarily. But there are some, uh, some shortcomings of the height measure. I would grant you that. Um, so I, I can just briefly describe it. What... Uh, what Paul Rosnan and John Haidt did in developing this measure, um, and again, giving them full credit for coming up with some fantastically creative ideas and really setting the stage for a lot of this research. Uh, they had an eye denomination process, and they gathered something like 200 examples of disgust elicitors, and they kind of eyeballed, there are eight domains here. Uh, based on their, uh, you know, qualitative interpretation of these responses. And uh, let's see, those eight domains were body products, animals, magic, body envelope violations, death, food, hygiene, and sex. And they created a 32-item measure intending to have four items for each of these domains. Um and there was never any kind of evidence that the items actually clustered in this manner. And to their credit, they said in their paper that, uh, you know, basically the reliability of these clusters is not high enough for um, for adequate inference using them. But the the overall scale is. Nevertheless, when the scale was published with eight factors, you saw dozens and dozens of papers saying. Well, uh, this phenomenon correlates with uh, magical thinking disgust, but not animal disgust. Or this phenomenon correlates with um, body envelope violation disgust, but not body product disgust. And there really was no valid way to be making those types of inferences because there wasn't any valid conception of these being two different types of disgust or the scale actually capturing them if there were these two different types of disgust. Um, And further. In the literature, the biggest critique of the scale was that the alphas are too low. But it's not necessarily that the alphas are too low. It's that there's no evidence of grouping the items in the first place. Low alpha, low <clears throat> internal reliability, basically will attenuate the effect sizes that you can observe when you use the instrument. They're not the end of the world. But using an instrument that's not actually mapping onto a construct that you think you're measuring, that's the big problem. So... Um, yeah. Basically, uh, my critique was that this scale is using 32 items. Um, it's purportedly measuring eight domains. Overall, it has adequate reliability, but you have a lot of really strange items that are probably just adding um, error variants. <clears throat> so you're measuring this one construct relatively inefficiently. And there might be some uh, correlated error variants, such as sexual conservatism that might be feeding into other things like political conservatism. That might be producing correlations that you're interpreting in the wrong way.
1: Uh, Josh, I, I, uh, I want to I suggest to you although that we, we, we break a little bit because I'm out of beer and I actually want another one. It's, uh, you know, th- it's now three o'clock and I feel I deserve a second one. But before we go there, I want to make two comments. Uh, Josh, you are entirely too rational. <laughs> and measured here. You know, let it out. Let, let the inner tiger out. It's okay to critique you well, Jonathan Haidt, um, anybody else. Um, number, uh, point number two is any measure that has willingness to blow up an unlubricated condom has to be a good measure.
0: Face ballad measure, you know, just that alone. So um, I'm, I'm pushing back. Um, I, I do think you need another beer. And I will say that I've known Josh a long time. And this is as excited as he gets. So, like, centered (laughs) within Josh, you're getting what you asked for.
1: Hi, everyone. Mickey here with a word from the sponsor of today's show, The Great Courses Plus. Now, I hope all of you, if not many of you, are sticking home for the time being with the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, during this time, you might be looking for things to do. Uh, things to occupy your mind in addition to listening to our fine podcast. And you if so, you might be interested in The Great Courses Plus. Um, I've been a longtime fan of The Great Courses Plus, uh, where I used to uh, go jogging while listening to the world's best lecturers um, talk about um, their topics of interest. I'm personally a fan of philosophy and have listened to classes on the philosophy of science and existential philosophy, but some of you might be particularly interested in getting reliable and fact-based information about, for example, um, pandemics, diseases, and the viruses. If so, you might be interested in a course called An Introduction to Infectious Diseases. Some of you who might be like me, who have family members who are infected with misinformation and if so you might like the class called fighting misinformation digital media literacy um, with the great courses plus you can listen on any internet connected device be that a TV a laptop a phone or a tablet now for listeners of our show we've got a special offer for you and um, You've got one month free of the entire catalog of The Great Courses Plus uh, for listeners of our show. But to get this offer, you need to sign up through our special URL. So to start your free month today, go to
0: thegreatcoursesplus.com slash beers. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we're both on Twitter. The show's handle is at 4 beers Pod. You can at mention us. You can DM us. We both check that account. If you would prefer to email us, you can reach us at 4 at gmail.com. Again, uh, that address we'll forward to both of us. Finally, our... Website, as always, is fourbeers.fireside.fm, where you can listen to this episode and our back catalog as well. And if you'd like, you can drop us a line there also uh, using our web form. If you're enjoying the show, please do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people discover us. Mickey, is there anything else you'd like to uh, talk about before we go back to Josh?
1: No, I think that's good. Just keep the emails coming. We enjoy reading them and uh please uh tell your friends and family all about us. Uh um if you like the show.
0: Yeah, I I was thinking, you know, in the last like couple months, we've gotten just a lot of smart, interesting, thoughtful feedback, uh mostly email. Uh and uh we we really enjoy that. So we uh I think we managed to respond to everybody or almost everybody. If we don't respond to you, sorry, sometimes emails just Get lost in the pile, but we have we do read them all and we do enjoy them. So if uh, a show an episode uh, strikes a chord with you, you have a thought to share, please don't hesitate to reach out. Okay, so with that, um, let's talk about what we're drinking. I'm still on the tea, but uh, you guys are drinking something more interesting, I guess.
1: Yeah. Uh, so I've had a this can of cider uh, in my basement for I, I think since last summer. I think someone brought it over for. Uh, A party I threw, Um, and I just—I'm not a cider drinker, so I just decided to drink this. It it seems uh, appropriate for for an afternoon beverage, and I was surprised to learn that cider can be, you know, quite strong. This is six percent. So I think, in addition to the radler, I'll be feeling uh, joyful, and uh, I'll be—I suspect it's going to improve my parenting after this uh,
0: after this episode. Well, you know, you're starting from a pretty low floor. So almost anything to say, you know, almost anything would be an improvement. Yeah. Josh, are you still on the IPA or?
2: Uh, I've switched to another IPA. I'm also at six percent. It's Maria Magdalena, a black IPA from Joopen Brewery in Harlem. And that's Harlem in the Netherlands, not Harlem in New York.
0: Yeah. The way you know that is there's an extra A in there, right?
2: There's next race, so you really got to go with Harlem. There you go. Yeah,
0: I've actually I've been to that brewery. They have a, like a church kind of thing,
2: right? That's uh, there. You, like you've been there with me, I think.
0: We've been there together. That's right. We <laughs> biked there. It was like we the most dumbest thing hay. ever. <laughs> yeah, we biked there from <laughs> right, and then we drank beer. Oh, that was great. So our bread and butter on the show is open
1: science. The you know this reform movement, and we focused a lot on. Uh, the lack of replication in 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 many studies we talk about measurement as well we 've talked about um you know some generalizability issues. one thing i don't think we 've talked about a lot, you well and correct me if i'm wrong is um the role that theory plays uh and the fact that there is not really a a, a good meta theory out there that unites a lot of what 's going on in psychology with at least one exception and the one exception that that i 'm talking about is um What's often touted as a as a thing we could uh lean lean into and and, and a, a theory that could that could help us understand many phenomena is evolutionary psychological theory and i wonder um you know if you can you can you know talk to us a little bit about this 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 notion of evolutionary psychology or, or evolutionary theory more generally as being something that could help psychology out of its current mess
2: yeah sure I'm happy to comment on that um I don't think all included this in the introduction, but uh, I did my PhD in an evolutionary psychology PhD program, one of the only ones uh, in the country. And our training was both in psychology and uh, anthropology and biology. So all three departments used evolutionary theory as a background, but focused on different kinds of content areas of study. And so, um, yeah, I was convinced by my education there that this really is a fruitful way to approach psychological study and uh, of course um, a lot of people have argued this john Tooby and lita cosmides uh, most notably they've written some of the fundamental ideas in evolutionary psychology um, within social psychology uh, Marilyn brewer has a really wonderful pspr paper from 2004 where she really forcefully argues that our understanding of social psychology is going to be limited if we don't take into account the evolutionary background of social adaptations, there's a bunch of other folks in social psych, Jeff Simpson, Steve Gangestad, Doug Kenrick, um, Steve Newberg, Mark Schaller, et cetera. Um, in uh, kind of preparing for this question a little bit, I, I think that it can be useful to see the benefits of this perspective by looking at how a lot of theories in social psychology are constructed currently. And I'll just pull out a couple of examples. Um, one, we can think of uh, social identity theory. So, social identity theory is tremendously popular across uh, continents. And it's basically built upon the premise that people are motivated to maintain a positive self concept or positive self esteem. And that our self concepts are tied to group identity. And so, effectively, the consequence of this is that a lot of intergroup biases prejudices and discrimination, ultimately function to maintain this positive self-image. Just as one more example, we can think about what's called compensatory control theory. And this is built on the idea that people are motivated to feel that they're in control of their own outcomes. If you don't feel like you're in control of your own outcomes, you'll experience stress and anxiety. And um, those are aversive sensations And so a lot of behaviors that people engage in, like their religious belief or their endorsement of kind of political systems, is based on reducing these feelings of a lack of control because of their aversive phenomenology. So um, we could give a lot more examples. So many theories in social psychology are built on similar foundations. And what might be useful to think about you know, what kind of explanatory power these give is to take a step back and imagine that we're trying to build a science of understanding another widespread phenomenon. For this example, let's think about why people eat. Okay. Um, and let's take a further step back and notice that people eat different things when they're pregnant than when they're not pregnant. And they eat different things when they're children than when they're adults. And they eat different things in Japan than they eat in France. And they eat more when they're 18 than when they're 70. Um, now, if we want to understand all of these different patterns in eating behavior, and we want to answer that basic underlying question as well, what kind of approach should we adopt? Basically, why would how would we answer the question? Why do people eat? What do you guys think? <laughs> people eat when they're hungry.
1: That doesn't explain. I don't think nearly any of the questions you 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 pose to us, but that would be the uh, the the one that jumps to mind.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So Mickey, you're you're a, you're a step ahead of me. So um, what, uh, what I think a lot of people's intuitions for answering that question um, are is that people eat so that they can acquire calories and nutrients that are required to keep your body running and that, you know, this also needs to be balanced against the cost of uh, pathogens and toxins and allergens and things that can, um, <clears throat> you know, create other disturbances in your body once they're ingested. And, you know, basically, when we have that kind of framework, all of these other patterns that we observe start to make sense. So during pregnancy, women have uh, different kind of caloric needs and different nutritional needs. They're differentially vulnerable to pathogens and substances that can harm their fetus. Um, When people are teenagers, they need more calories than when they're 70 years old. Uh, People take advantage of a lot of social and cultural learning and developing food preferences to kind of take advantage of, you know, generations of wisdom of how to extract calories from an ecology in a way that doesn't put you at risk for pathogens and and toxins. Now, instead, if we were to answer the question the way that you did, Mickey, we say, well, people eat because they're hungry um, and because they want to avoid feeling hungry. Basically, that gives us almost no traction to tie together all of these types of disparate phenomena, and um, it's not incorrect at all. So people do eat because they're hungry. If you ask someone why are you eating, most of the time they're going to say I'm eating because I'm hungry. You know, sometimes they'll say I'm eating because someone gave this to me, and it'll be rude if I don't eat it. But that's going to account for most of the variance in the uh, the outcome that you're looking at. Um, that said. Uh, if we just leave it at that level, we don't understand why people feel hunger in the first place. And we don't understand why those experiences of hunger are going to differ across contexts and why we're going to seek different foods to alleviate those sensations of hunger. Now, if we take that framework of, well, people eat because they don't want to feel hungry, because hunger is aversive, that's basically the level of explanation that most of these popular theories in social psychology are at. Um, we, we don't want to have a negative self-concept, therefore we do X. We don't want to feel like we don't have control because that doesn't feel good, therefore we do Y. We don't want to have anxiety because that's bad, therefore we do Z. And um, again, at a phenomenological level, It's difficult to disagree with that, but in terms of the kind of cumulative knowledge and prediction to go across a lot of domains and understand when those types of phenomenological experiences are elicited, um, yeah, we're we're just not going to be able to make that much progress.
1: Yeah, that makes lots lots of sense to me um, because, and and I think what you've described as like the 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 standard mode of, uh, uh, of operating in psychology um it it rings true uh, to me i think you know we see uh, you know oftentimes what i observed is people will see some phenomenon out there in the world and then have some lay intuition and then test that lay intuition and voila science uh we've shown you know you know we've corroborated some lay intuition um and i'm not saying that is necessarily wrong and and i think you've said the same thing like yeah, it's true we do eat because we're hungry but it doesn't it doesn't actually, you know, allow for an accumulation of knowledge. It's like we're just reiterating what we have already known. Um, and that's why I guess people are, are suggesting we need some unifying framework, something that not only um, allows us to explain various things, but also like it, it, it kind of points us in the direction of what to even ask. What questions are worth asking? And at what level, what kind of answer are we looking for? So I think that, you know, that the people eat because they're hungry, that's a very uh, low level answer. It's a, um, a proximal motivation. And I think what something like um, evolutionary theory provides us with is not just proximal, but also ultimate uh functions um, why uh, why in a in a more you know global sense, people are hungry to begin with and wh- when uh, at one point, and why are there differences across these 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 features that you've mentioned? um so then that's really the why we need this 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 unifying theory, and i, I think evolutionary psych is um is a good one to go with, uh, but at the same time. And I think so more and more, or maybe it's just that I, that I, you know, I spend too much time on Twitter. It seems like the answers, uh, sorry, it seems like the reactions one gets when one invokes evolutionary explanations is met with lots of resistance. Um, resistance, you know, from many quarters, you know, not just, you know, uh, from the left, but on the right as well sometimes. Um, so, uh, well, why do you think that is? Why Why do you think, you know, this, the theory that I don't think is controversial at, at, at the biological level in terms of, you know, scientists, you know, in biology, even no one, I, I don't think at least, disagrees with this as a unifying framework. Why is it so problematic when when it comes to understanding human psychology?
2: Yeah, well, you know, when you say that most people don't find it controversial in certain contexts, that actually rings true with my research uh, program. I've rarely gotten any pushback personally from using an evolutionary perspective to understand disgust. When I explain it to people, there's usually a nodding along. That makes a lot of sense. Oh, that I hadn't thought about it that way. That's a really useful way to approach things. Um, when you start using the same theoretical perspective to try to understand uh, intergroup biases or aggression, that's when feathers start to get ruffled a little bit, I think. Um, but but why is that? Well, um, you said that there's some pushback both on the right and the left. And if you could kind of create a theoretical perspective in the lab to piss off the most people possible, it might be evolutionary psychology. Um, so you have uh, on the right, so very religious people who might just reject evolution in general. And I've known some of them. Um, and on the left, you have these intuitions that evolutionary perspectives are trying to make some kind of political point that's um, kind of a reactionary right-wing point. And we have evidence of this going back to the 1970s when E.O. Wilson published his book, Sociobiology, which was integrating a lot of work from the the modern synthesis in the 50s and 60s in evolutionary biology to try to understand social behavior. And um, Wilson was, uh, he was picketed at his office at Harvard, he was compared to uh, uh, to Nazis, and he was even physically assaulted during an academic talk by left-wing activists. They had this perception that because he was trying to use evolutionary theory to explain uh, social behavior, and maybe by extension, explain human social behavior, he was going to justify all sorts of really nefarious uh, behaviors by right-wing people. And maybe... Create racism himself. And of course, especially in social psychology and then expanding into the humanities, uh, these disciplines, as you guys are aware, are very left-wing. And um, sometimes, uh, you know, some people have a real priority in terms of um, having certain political outcomes with their research. And if there's this theoretical perspective that's being perceived as potentially uh, contrary to those uh, beliefs or goals, I think that there's going to be some skepticism and potentially hostility toward it. So, one answer I think is really uh, political. Um, there's another issue, which is coalitional. So, basically, uh, you know, I, I think that this can be a real shortcoming in science of labeling people in terms of, oh, these people are evolutionary psychologists. These people are social psychologists. These people are social identity researchers. These people are terror management researchers, et cetera. And when there's a finite number of faculty hires and uh, grant dollars or euros, et cetera, um, there can be a little bit of a a feeling of a threat of encroachment. Um, One one minor point on that is evolutionary psychologists are not kind of rivals with social psychologists. We're, We're in your midst. So I am a social psychologist and I'm also an evolutionary psychologist. It's kind of like comparing um, organic fruit to apples they're not uh, there's there, there's a lot of overlap between those two categories. One of them is just talking about what you're studying and the other one is kind of talking about how you're conceptualizing the field or how you're approaching something um, and then finally. I think that there's some resistance based on a topic that you just um, voiced yourself, Mickey, which is intuitions. So it's really intuitive to think in terms of these kind of proximate phenomenological motivations. And when you start saying, yeah, well, maybe um, maybe disgust isn't just about feeling a certain way toward revolting things or dirty things. But it served these functions with, you know, avoiding these invisible pathogens. And we're going to have these assumptions that over hundreds of thousands of years, natural selection has acted like a sifting mechanism to make us be able to identify certain colors and patterns. Um, There's a there's a certain degree of credulity that an observer needs to have to follow that kind of account through. And again, with disgust, it's not that hard of a sell with people's understanding of evolution and uh, the germ theory of disease now. But with other phenomenon, especially related to social interaction, social exclusion, aggression, that cell can be um, maybe a little bit more difficult. So along those lines, what are some of the misconceptions
0: that you think are are most important that researchers or, or maybe lay people have about uh, evolutionary psychology?
2: Well, just for using evolutionary perspectives as they're used by um, you know the the type of prominent evolutionary psychology research programs you'll see in uh, well in the U.S., Europe, Australia, Japan, China. Um, one is genetic determinism. So this is something that people often feel averse to, and they 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 feel that evolutionary perspectives are making this type of argument. Um, and that's uh, that's kind of a red a red herring. So all evolutionary perspectives are are based on environmental components. What's happening in your environment? how you're interpreting your environment, and um, indeed, how you're developing differentially depending on environmental inputs that you experience during development. You know, John Tooby and Lita Cosmes have this great great uh, metaphor, and that is that, you know, saying that uh, genes are more important than environment is kind of saying like the the width is more important than the height in determining the area of a rectangle. It's just a nonsensical question that doesn't compute. Another is, you know, this isn't a misconception necessarily, but it's a widely used term that's basically meaningless. And that's the term innate. So people often wonder is this trait innate or is it learned or something like that? But um, in reality, the term innate is sometimes interpreted as it's fully formed at birth. Sometimes it's interpreted as, well, it's not formed at birth, but it's going to develop regardless of any kind of um, developmental inputs. Sometimes it's just interpreted as, well, it doesn't require learning, but it could have different developmental inputs. And so there's this kind of folk idea of, uh, you know, something um, essentialist about the phenotype that doesn't necessarily map on with uh, how, developmental, how development occurs. Uh, along with that, there are many evolutionary psychology researchers who actually study development and study how natural selection has favored different developmental programs that should be sensitive to different environmental inputs. Um, Billum Frankenhaus has done a lot of this. Also, Daniel Nettle, looking at our people who grow up in kind of more harsh or unpredictable environments, um, how that might affect their risk taking when they grow up and different kind of specializations with um, intelligence and problem solving. and. Uh, you know, just uh, finally, for an inconception, going back to the right-wing political agenda. So um, the first study I did in graduate school, uh, I did the study in 2005, and it was eventually published in 2007. Um, I studied the political attitudes of evolutionary psychologists, because I'd read all of these criticisms that evolutionary psychologists are these really radical right-wing people, But no one had actually reported any data on this. It was just based on kind of assumptions and innuendos and calling people Nazis. And so, um, you know, as as a grad student, just in the early days of uh, listservs and online studies, I contacted all of the PhD students at the evolutionary psychology programs across the U.S., uh, both EP grad students and non-EP grad students. And I had them report whom they had voted for in the 2004 presidential election and their political attitudes on a lot of discrete issues. And what we found is that the, the PhD students who were drawn to and being trained in evolutionary psychology programs were exactly equally extremely liberal as the other students in clinical and cognitive and social psychology. There was no difference whatsoever. So um, it that, that was the case in 2005 I can't guarantee that it's the same now; that nothing has changed. But based on my experience with colleagues, uh, you know, everyone is of a pretty common political ideology in the EP community.
0: Yeah. So I wonder how much of this um, perception of Evpsych being, you know, pushing a conservative agenda has to do with the the early focus you know, perceived or real on gender differences in, in sex and mating. Preferences. It it seems like that's a really hot button thing. It seems like, you know, if you're talking about, uh, well, to like put it super crudely, men are interested in a lot of young, fertile sex partners and women are interested in good providers. You're sort of reinforcing this dominant cultural narrative. And when that's what people hear is evolutionary psychology, they're like, oh, there are obviously these conservative agenda pushers. I mean I can imagine like a different history where like you start by studying I don't know disgust and eating or disease avoidance and it just like kind of big, seems much more acceptable to people.
1: Thank you for saying this you because I've had the exact same intuition like politically it just seems like you know why select topic a topic that is going to polarize people and going to alienate people? This like you know, evolutionary theory is so rich, and there's so much you can you can you can talk about. Why start there? But my first introduction to. Um, not evolution, but evolutionary psychology was David Buss's uh, one of his, I think, review papers and one of these uh, big handbooks, and it was all about what you just said. You know, men are uh, men are interested in X, and women are interested in Y. And right away, you could I, I would see classmates of mine, you know, being repelled uh, just by that topic, if not the approach. So yeah, politically, it just seems uh, like why would why would people start there?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I think that it's important to keep in mind that in the evolutionary psychology community, there's not a, a meeting of researchers to strategize who's going to be researching what and what uh, kind of consequences for people's perceptions of the field there will be. Um, and, you know, if, if we go back to kind of the the origins of evolutionary psychology with work by uh, John Tooby and Lita Cosmides, they were really looking at cheater detection and um, and cooperation uh, Martin Daly and Margo Wilson in the early and mid 80s were looking at um, similar topics and also uh, homicide and um, child abuse. And uh, it, it is true that some other prominent early research like David Buss's research and Doug Kenrick's research on mate choice um, is what is uh, yeah what people perceive the most. Now, that might be partially because um, people are picking up on the more salacious topics than uh, cheater detection. That said, I think that you're totally right. Uh, mating research is overrepresented in evolutionary psychology for all of the other things that the field could be studying. Um, I think that there's uh, an easy explanation for that, and that, it's the, that is that it's the lowest hanging fruit. So basically, it's really easy to ask people uh, if they're a man or a woman. And we have a lot of um, theoretically rich ideas as to why the sexes should differ. And so these are these are topics where you can look at um, a variety of species and see patterns that, you know, don't align perfectly with humans because we have, of course, unique social ecologies and unique reproductive life histories, unique uh, paternal investment relative to most other sexually uh, well relative to most other mammals. At the same time, just something like um, Trevor's parental investment theory gives you a lot of ground for making pretty strong predictions about pretty large sex differences. Uh, I, I don't want to say that the work is easy because, you know, it, it's a generalization that doesn't apply to a lot of work in mating, but again, it's something where the predictions flow pretty straightforwardly from um, comparative work and from some foundational ideas, If you're talking about the social functions of pride and shame, something that might be a little bit more complex and doesn't necessarily have the same kind of comparative evidence, um, that's something that maybe you need to dedicate three years to think about and to develop a new paradigm. And so fewer people have probably gravitated toward that topic.
0: Yeah, this is super interesting. Like. We've touched on this before, and this is obviously not just an evolutionary psychology thing, but the sort of natural selection of topics or paradigms that are easy to study. Because like you said, if if it takes longer to do it, you're at a disadvantage compared to the people who do the easier thing and publish more papers, right? And so is that necessarily the best paradigm? Is it necessarily the question that's going to be the most illuminating or informative? Maybe not. Um, But nonetheless, it's going to it's going to win out. So I'm conscious of the time here. I I know we have five minutes before Mickey has to run. There is a topic that is so personally relevant to all three of us that you study that I just wanted to end on it. Uh, Can you guess what I'm about to ask
2: you? Uh, I'm looking at your head.
0: Yeah, exactly. So you have a recent paper on the perceptions of bald men. And, you know, I I saw this title and abstract. I was like, man, I really, I got to hear this. So um, do you want to uh, just tell us what you guys did and what you found? I want to hear about this too, but I just
1: want to make, I want to clarify the question here, you will. Are you saying that I am follically challenged? Are, Are you saying that I'm bald as well?
0: yeah we're we're including you in the bald club because because the paper includes people who shave their head by choice, okay so it's not just that you you know have have no other recourse it's it could also be that that you decide to get rid of your hair in order to project a certain image
2: yeah and Yoel and I obviously shave our heads by choice these days right obviously a hundred percent. I've shaved it by choice since I was 25, and yeah, I I saw how it was going. Um, So uh, my colleagues, Brian Spischak and Nancy Blake, are leadership researchers in a business school, and uh, Brian's also bald. And he was uh, curious about the kinds of information that you share by having a shaved head versus having male pattern baldness versus having a full head of hair, and that, you know, people might infer certain things related to age, for example, from male pattern baldness that might be masked by shaving your head. And also there might be um, kind of conceptions about what a shaved head communicates in terms of uh, being in a gang or being in a prison, um, et cetera. So uh, Brian and I, uh, we got pictures of 31 guys, including myself. So we used a stimulus sampling approach. And. We got a graphic designer to basically Photoshop full heads of hair. So I'm actually stimu- uh, a, a stimulus in this paper. So you all if you put this in the show links. Everyone can see me with a uh, full head of hair. I want to see this. I, I will pay
1: money to, to, to see the, you know, the <laughs> cropped hair on your head.
2: And um, I, I, I think that I look unsavory. You guys can be the judge. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I was thinking that, you know, shape heads are going to do all sorts of great things for how people are perceived. But uh, it turns out that the guys with shaved heads, and again, this is varying within stimulus. So some participants see a face with a shaved head. Other participants say the exact same face, uh, male pattern baldness. Uh, Nope. Having a shaved head is worse in pretty much every dimension you can measure. Uh, You're less attractive. You're perceived as less intelligent. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, another interest of brian's was to see if leadership preferences vary depending on kind of the frames of leadership selection so replicating some of his past work in another study participants were asked imagine you're the leader of a country that and then there's a prompt of you're at war or there's a prompt of it's peacetime and you need to uh, negotiate etc um and then there's a neutral condition uh And they're doing the same kind of leadership selection for the same faces. And here we thought, well, this is where the shaved heads are really going to be preferred is in the wartime scenario. Well, it it just so happens that that's the only condition where you don't get a penalty for having a shaved head. So uh, you're not really preferred in that condition. People are just willing to tolerate you. And then the other conditions, yeah, again, if you have a shaved head uh, people are generally preferring you less for these prestigious positions. So, you know, uh, Mickey, if if you have a choice between shaving your head and leaving it as is, maybe leave it as is.
1: So not only will I be, uh, a, I will appear more attractive, I'll, I'll you know, I'll, I'll appear more efficacious and confident if I have the male pattern baldness as opposed to the voluntarily shaved head.
2: Yeah. You know, if, if Canada is going to war or if, you know, the University of Toronto is uh, having a competition with uh, McGill or with um, Hamilton or something. You know, you might not pay a huge penalty, but otherwise, keep it as it is.
0: Well, actionable advice, Mickey. I'm looking forward to seeing your hair grow out. All right, I'm. I, you know, from this day forward, uh, leaving it all grow.
1: I've always wanted to grow a fro, like a big fro, but I felt with the, the male pat- pattern baldness, it would um, be awkward.
0: No, no, this is the time, man. This is the time to do it. COVID nineteen Afro. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, Mickey, I, I know you have uh, something you have to uh, go to. Um, Josh, thank you so much for joining us. This was really informative and um, such a pleasure getting to chat. Mickey, you want to throw in anything else? before? Yeah, you yeah, yeah. Also, thank you so
1: much, Josh. It was... Um, yeah, it was I, I felt I learned a lot uh, listening to you. And uh, I think we've only met in person one once. Uh, so it was nice to see you and, and, and have a kind of a longer conversation with you. So thank you so much for uh, agreeing to be on the podcast.
2: Thanks to you guys. Uh, I'm a big fan of the podcast. Listen to it every time it comes out. So it's an honor to chat with you. Feels a little silly to say that with Yoel, well, since we're uh, kind of friends. But uh, nevertheless, I appreciate the invite.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Talk to you next time.